Hello and welcome to another episode of Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a grind of Ukrainian travel. I am your host Larissa and before we begin I want to say a big thank you to my friend Nestor, the musician who came up with the intro for this podcast. Nestor, you are amazing my friend. Um, Also, I just want to warn everyone that we are doing renovations on our kitchen so everything from the kitchen is in this little um, office with me so if something clatters and falls that's why um, I want to say also that I have great news and Wandering the Edge is now available on Spotify um, podcasts so if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts you can find us there now I love coffee like love it one of my friends, Cass, I believe, once said that I, I was in a bad mood in the morning. All they had to do was give me a cup of coffee. I'm not like obsessed with it to the point of eating coffee beans, uh, but I enjoy my cup of coffee to the point where I can sniff out a Starbucks in any random location. Uh, like when I was in Istanbul, I was feeling cranky and randomly found a Starbucks under a bridge. I wasn't looking for it specifically, but it came in very handy. And so this episode is dedicated to my favorite drink, kava. As always, please be aware of the language used. And if you're not used to swearing, then you will not be used to me. But before we delve into the history of coffee in Ukraine, let's talk travel. Okay, so even though I lived in Kiev, there was not one decent coffee place there. Like, I had to try to find a good coffee, um, a good cafe with decent coffee. Hell, I even went to the Mick Cafe during the summer since they were the only ones with a decent iced coffee. But the coffee capital of Ukraine is Lviv, the capital of Western Ukraine. It has a long history of coffee making, which I will explain further on, uh, but has literally any type of coffee you want. I had my first real Turkish coffee here in this little store on the Denok Square. I don't think it's there anymore, um, but they would literally roast the coffee in those bronze coffee, uh, Turkish pots. And I remember sand was involved for frothing, but I can't be absolutely sure about that, nor do I know why. And even though I doubt it's still there, you can get that traditional Turkish coffee in Pidsenoyu Flashkoyu, translates to under the blue bottle, which is an ode to a Viennese cafe that I'll come back to later. So this cafe is a bit tricky to get to. It's in an alleyway off Ruska Street, and it's probably just best to Google the location. So the menu offers full meals, but also desserts and coffee, like dozens of coffee options. The atmosphere is sort of dark and moody um, because they use candles throughout, but it's a great atmosphere resonating pre-electricity times and it keeps cool in the hot UV of summer. Another place with traditional Turkish coffee is Vyamenka, uh, which is located on 19 Vermenska Street if you want to have a little bit more of a sunny experience. Now, one of the oldest coffee houses in Lviv, however, is located at the Vienna Hotel, which is located right smack in the middle of the city behind Tarashevchenko statue on Svoboda Boulevard. 
The hotel and coffee house opened in 1829 when Lviv was called Lemberg and was still under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This was the epicenter of Viennese uh, tradition in Lviv. Even today, the original design is well-preserved. There's even a portrait of Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph hanging in the main coffee um, area. This traditional Viennese coffee house also includes your daily newspapers that you can sit at your little wooden table and enjoy your coffee and read the daily news, just like they did 200 years ago. This place is super traditional, but you can also feel the history of the city in that one place. So politicians, intellectuals, Ukrainians, Poles, Austrians, they all enjoyed their coffee here. Ivan Franko, famous Ukrainian poet, writer, and political thinker, loved this place, mostly because he did not pubs and restaurants and was, again, an intellectual. And then there's the coffee, uh, there's the Lviv Coffee Mining Manufacture. Now, this is my favorite coffee house and is located at 10 Renok Square, right outside Lviv's town hall. Yes, the name is weird, but it's weird because I let, uh, like I said in that premiere episode, Lviv loves themes. So if you walk into this place, it is a bit of a tourist trap. Uh, they sell coffee in the first section of their store that comes out of their basement via a mining belt. So it looks like you're getting your fresh coffee beans straight from the underground mine. Then comes the shop selling random stuff to tourists, and I have to admit, I actually bought stuff from them, like coffee and their moonshine, as presents, and both were well-received. Now, if you walk further on a bit, you can either go into the basement and check out their so-called mining operation, uh, or you walk into the proper coffee house part and grab yourself a chair. Now, if you don't see one immediately, just continue walking through as it is longer than it appears. Their menu includes traditional Ukrainian, Polish, and Austrian desserts, along with their unique coffee drinks, and the servers will be more than happy to explain the different variations of coffee choices that you have. I have brought friends, family, and my husband to sit with me in this place. I, I love it, and I love it more because it embraces its past really well. There's dozens of historical pictures on the walls, um, the actual building was the site of the 1941 Declaration of Ukrainian Independence, and I don't know how historically accurate this is, because I doubt it, but it also claims to be the site of the first coffee house in Lviv, which is how we will continue into the history part of this episode. <laughs> honestly thought the coffee bean came from South America, uh, but I was super wrong. It's originally from the Ethiopian region and came to Europe via the Middle East, Yemen specifically, uh, which was the home of the first coffee plantation in the 15th century. The Turkish Empire's conquest of the Arabian Peninsula in the 16th century brought coffee into Istanbul, where the world's first coffee house was documented in 1554. And it spread from there to Cairo, Damascus, uh, Mecca, and Medina. 
the 17th century brought to Central Europe via Venetian merchants. Rome, as per usual, was very suspicious, and some council of some sort asked Pope Clement VIII to declare it an invention of Satan. But the Pope actually drank the damn thing first and declared that, quote, this devil's drink is so delicious, we should cheat the devil by baptizing it, end quote. And so, because Clement was a tired SOB and liked to be perked up, Europe got the church's blessing to spread the coffee bean. Europe's first coffee house was opened in Venice in 1645, uh, England in 1650, France's was in 1672, and the New World saw a coffee house in Boston in 1676. All of this information, by the way, was explained in Giorgio Milos's article, Coffee's Mysterious Origins, in the Atlantic from 2010. Now, in 1683, a Ukrainian would revolutionize the coffee world during the Great Turkish War. Europe in the 17th century was just one war after one war, skirmish battle and civil war after skirmish battle and civil war. Yes, it was also the century of exploration and expansion into North America, but for this episode, we'll just stick to the wars of Central Europe. So the Great Turkish War has many, many other names, including, but not limited to, the Polish-Ottoman War, the Habsburg-Ottoman War, the War of the Holy League, and others. Christopher Christopher um, called the Great Turkish War, quote, probably the last formal crusade, end quote, of the church and its allies against the Muslim Ottoman Empire. It's also possible that Ukrainians started it, so oops. Uh, if you remember from the previous episode, uh, Ukrainian history during this time was dominated by the Zaporizhian Cossacks, which included the Khmelnytsky uprising against Poland in 1648. After that uprising, uh, Petro Doroshenko became the leader of the Cossacks, the Hetman, in 1665, and he really did not want to be part of the Polish kingdom, and started another rebellion. But this time, Doroshenko asked help from Sultan Mohamed IV, who was himself half Ukrainian, as his mother was a Ukrainian-born concubine. Not to be confused with Roxulana, Mohamed IV's mother's name was Nadia. She was sold into slavery and sent to the imperial harem in the 1640s-ish and was known in the Ottoman Empire as uh, Tehran Sultan. Anyway, Mohamed begins attacking cities within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to the point where it weakens the Polish army in Ukraine. This results in a Polish defeat, and then the Habsburg Empire, Austrians, is now vulnerable to Ottoman attack. The Ottoman Empire attacks Vienna in 1683, and a new Holy League is initiated by Pope Innocent XI i.e. that last crusade stuff from earlier, which includes the Holy Roman Empire led by the Habsburgs, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the Venetian Republic, and later on even joined by the Russian Empire. The Siege of Vienna is eventually won by the, Ho the Holy League, 
And the end result of this war was basically the initial creation of that Austro-Hungarian Empire because the Habsburgs take over most of Bosnia, Hungary, Croatia, and Transylvania. There are other battles within this larger war, but that's not what we're going to talk about in this episode. And like anything else to do with the wars of Europe, it just hurts my head to figure out alliances and sides and blah, just... Uh, It just looks like battle in an overall fucking war. Uh, Okay, back to 1683 Vienna. On March 31st, a declaration was sent for a Mahmed to the Viennese imperial court, and the next day, the Ottoman army began marching. Before they get to Vienna, however, most of the Viennese flee, including the stupid Emperor Leopold, which, if I was a citizen of Vienna, I would be pissed. Like, what's the point of living in the capital if the freaking emperor ups and leaves when there's a threat coming towards you? On July 7th, 40,000 Crimean Tartars arrive and wait one week for the additional 150,000 strong Ottoman army to invade outside of Vienna. Want to know how many Viennese face off against nearly 200,000 soldiers? 15,000 fucking soldiers. That's like 13 to 1. So good luck to you, Vienna, I guess. The leader of the Viennese was Count Ernst Rudiger Graf von Starhemberg, who was wise enough to destroy the houses backing up to the city walls and cleared that debris, which allowed them to have an empty space that exposed the Ottomans to defensive positions. Uh, it's just, sorry, defensive operations when they tried to attack the city. The Viennese also had more cannons, 370 versus 130 field guns and 19 medium caliber cannons. There are also other interesting moments in the defense and siege of Vienna, and there's a great episode on uh, BBC Radio 4 in the In Our Time section from 2009 which gives you more of an in-depth look at the importance of the Battle of Vienna. And I'll post a link on the sources and blog session section of the website wanderingtheedge.net. It was literally called the battle that saved European civilization. So it's at least somewhat interesting if you like European history. So luckily, uh, the Viennese hold out long enough to get reinforcements from the King of Poland, John II Sobieski who personally leads his army. Now, this is important because Sobieski hated the Austrians because they were both fighting for the same lands. But Sobieski also understood that if the Austrians fall, the Ottomans have a clear path toward Poland, and in particular Krakow, the former capital of the Kingdom of Poland. And so on September 6th, the Poles crossed the Danube, um, about 30 uh, kilometers outside of Vienna, and uh, attach additional forces to them, which included the Zaporizhian Cossacks, who were more than happy to get paid to go to war with anyone. The Polish-led army only numbered about 80,000. For some unknown reason, the Khan of Krym, the leader of the Crimean Tartars, who was to defend the rear of the Ottoman forces, refused to attack the Polish-led relief forces and, once they were in place, bonfires signaled their arrival to the besieged Venetians. Now, a Ukrainian nobleman living in Vienna 
would change the outcome of the battle and change the way we drink coffee today. Yuri Franz Kuczynski was born around 1640 in Kuczynski near Sambir, which is now in the Lviv province or oblast. We know that he was born into a noble family and joined the Zaporizhian Cossacks when he was probably around 20. Uh, romantic adventurism was abound back in those days. We do know that his time in the Cossack army was fruitful. He became involved with military affairs and took part in various raids into the Krim. His time in the Cossacks was also his beginning as an interpreter, as his higher-ups recognized his gift for languages. He would end up knowing Turkish, Hungarian, Polish, Ukrainian, Serbian, German, and Romanian. So yeah, interpreter was like his dream job. Now, we don't know when for sure, uh, but he was eventually captured by the Tartars during one of those Cossack raids into Krim. I guess he was then probably sent into the Ottoman heartland, where he, as a captive he learned the local language, culture, and customs. Being a hostage didn't mean you couldn't enjoy yourself. Uh, in a book by Oleksandr Skripnik, a Ukrainian writer, publisher, and former press officer of the Ukrainian security forces, from 2009 translated to uh, Ukrainian Traces in Intelligence, he suggests that Kulchitsky was initially tortured and his time in the Cossacks enabled him to withstand it. I don't know how true that is, but Skripnik does do a good job detailing the lives of Ukrainian spies throughout the centuries. He also explains that although Kulchitsky was living among the, among the uh, Ottomans and adapted their customs, he never converted to Islam. I'm sure he respected it, though. He seems like the type to be cool with whatever. Uh, he was, eventually, bought out of captivity. A Serbian merchant noticed his talents and rightfully wanted him to work for the Austrian Oriental Company in Belgrade. He then moved to Vienna in 1678, where he launched his own trading business, but also worked on translating imperial documents and helped gather information about the military-political character of the Ottoman Empire since he traveled between Vienna, Belgrade, and Istanbul regularly. I mean, if you read between the lines, clearly he was a spy. It was also during this time in 1678 to 1680 that he worked at the Austrian embassy in Istanbul and reported that the Ottomans were getting ready for military operations against Hungary which was in the Austrian sphere of influence. In 1683, Kulczynski was living in Vienna in an apartment of a Captain Frank, a servant officer of the Viennese military garrison. He was living there when the Ottomans came to besiege Vienna. Once he heard that Count Starhemberg was looking for a, quote, daredevil, who knew Turkish could sneak through enemy lines and complete an almost impossible intelligence mission, well, Kulczynski jumped at the chance, telling Frank to take me to the Count. And so after some discussion, the Count agreed. Kulczynski found his old Turkish clothes and decided to bring along his friend, 
Yuri Mihailovich, a Serb who also knew Turkish from his time working for the Austrian emperor in Istanbul. Who at that time didn't work for the Austrians in Istanbul? I don't know. Anyway, Kulczynski took the Count's letter, sewed it into his clothes, and the two set off on their little adventure. It was when they left the city walls that there was a blinding thunderstorm, and the two got lost among the Ottoman tents. So, historians tend to think that Kulczynski was a pretty likable guy. I mean, he managed wonderfully during his captivity, and he had that knack of getting people to be open and friendly with him. That feeling you get that, like, you've known this guy for ages, even though you've only just met him, that was Kulczynski. And so, when the sun rose on these two lost souls in the middle of the Ottoman camp, they were met with some Turkish genissaries. Uh, these were like the elite Ottoman troops. And Kulczynski began singing a happy Turkish song to get through these soldiers. Eventually, he was pulled into an officer's tent and made to explain what the hell he's doing there. He replied, well, that's simple. They came here as lowly merchants, you see, but because of the rain, all their products have been destroyed and they are now penniless. Kulczynski somehow managed to get this officer to give him coffee, coffee beans because he felt bad for him and told him to be careful since he can fall into the hands of the infidel, uh, uh, infidels. The officer also told them the best route to walk in order to avoid the Ottoman detachments who were gathering to attack the enemy. Kulczynski said, thanks, and walked right out. So these two were so convincing that when they were crossing the Danube at some small village, they were almost killed because the villagers thought they were Turkish, but managed to cross they did, and they delivered their message about Vienna's plight. Uh, they organized light signals with Vienna's allies, and then they returned to Vienna with a reply. When they got back into the city, Count Starhemberg issued a decree informing Vienna of the Allies' arrival and began to coordinate a strike against the Turks with the Polish army on the other side of the Ottomans. The Battle of Vienna would last one day, September 11th, and be completed by sunset. There were multiple attacks and counterattacks, but by the late afternoon, the Ottoman army sort of knew their battle was over, the last attack would be around 6 p.m. when the Polish king ordered the largest cavalry charge in history. 18,000 horsemen charged down the hills toward the Ottomans' headquarters, and by then, the exhausted and demoralized Ottomans lost their battle. King Sobieski ended his campaign against the Ottomans by paraphrasing Julius Caesar with, and now this is fucking awesome, we came, we saw, God conquered. I quite literally picture this as Sobieski taunting Emperor Leopold, like, I was here cleaning up your mess, now don't be stupid and attack me because I will drop you. There were about 5,000 Ukrainian Cossack cavalry within the Polish army, and some of them became well known in later years. And let me acknowledge that their histories are just as complicated as Ukrainian history. They change sides often, they tried to play the game of politics, but it usually tended to not work in their favor. Their leader during the Battle of Vienna was Danila Apostle, 
For example, a prominent colonel and hetman of the Zaporizhian host from 1727 to 1734. He fought against and for Peter the Great, but was hated by Catherine I, so Peter the Great's second wife. Along with Apostle, there was also Semen Pali, a Cossack colonel who was in the Polish service. And then he was an ally of Russia and then called for open rebellion. Then there was Ivan Iskra, who was another colonel, but was against Ivan Mazepa. But he was executed by Peter the Great for warning him of Mazepa's eventual uprising against him. Ivan Mazepa was a great Cossack military leader who led an unsuccessful uprising against Peter the Great in alliance with Sweden. Anyway, after the Battle of Vienna, the Ottomans left behind 30,000 killed, but also 20,000 tents, 20,000 bulls, buffaloes, camels, and mules, 10,000 sheep, and 100,000 sacks of grain, which was a great prize for the besieged and hungry Vienna. Vienna, Count Starhemberg asked Kulczycki what he wanted as a reward. Kulczycki, being an entrepreneur, said, just give me those bags with those uh, gray-green grains. And the Count was like, okay, you crazy person. Since they all thought the coffee grains were cattle feed, uh, Kulczycki knew what it was from his time in Turkish captivity. And he, since he was a mudraholova, i.e. smarthead, he started his own coffee house in Vienna in 1684. The Hof zur Bluen Flasche, or the house under the blue glass, was the first Viennese coffee house. The one in Lviv today is an influence from that one, but it was not an immediate hit. The majority of customers were Kuczynski's fans, wanting him to retell his harrowing tale of crossing enemy territory, rather than coming in to buy coffee. Kuczynski would eventually write a booklet about his escapade, but also started to sell his coffee in full Turkish costume to attract customers. Look, black coffee is gross. I will have it if there's nothing else, but it's not great which is a sentiment that the Viennese shared. So Kuczynski started to experiment and added sugar and milk and said, instead of, Tur instead of serving Turkish coffee, I will serve Viennese coffee. And so a classic drink was born. Kuczynski was venerated in Vienna. He died in 1694 as a national hero of Austria and on the 200th, 200th anniversary of the Turkish invasion, a bronze statue of him was put up on one of the corner buildings on the street named after him in the city. Lviv put up their own monument in 2013 to honor the man, which included a bag of coffee that then turns into coins, because he was a smarty pants after all. So how did coffee come to Kilchitsky's native land? No one else. There's a legend that it was Kuczynski himself who arrived in Lviv with his signature drink. But he was pretty busy spying for Austria even in his later years, so no idea if this is true. 
It certainly came from the Austrian Empire, when the region was placed under their rule during the first partition of Poland in 1772. The three partitions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth were done because of these, because by the time of the second half of the 18th century, it was basically a Russian satellite state. And in order to prevent a war between the Russian Empire and the Habsburg-Austrian uh, Empire, the Commonwealth was split up between Russia, Austria, and Prussia. These partitions eventually ended the existence of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth by 1795. And thus, Lviv became Little Vienna and incorporated the Viennese coffee culture. One of the first coffee tastings was apparently during a summer pavilion outside of the Vienna Hotel, the same one that I mentioned in the travel part of this episode. And this pavilion would eventually be incorporated into the hotel itself and become the Vienna Cafe. The coffee houses in Lviv were a copy of the Vienna ones. Places for people of different political and business interests to gather, although women weren't allowed to enter because, you know, patriarchy. Uh, that pavilion outside the Vienna Cafe was a particular favorite of local youths, bohemians, and secular uh, ideologues. Oh, the blasphemy that they talked about over a cup of coffee. There were even special coffee houses um, who also had prostitutes on the menu. Not like literally, at least I don't think. Um, apparently, there was a saying back then that a real Lviv resident would consume a cup of coffee every 40 minutes. By the turn of the 20th century, however, it became more and more difficult for commoners to afford restaurants and cafes, and so only the wealthy would be seen in them. The richest of the rich had special coffee maids at their disposal at home. There was a sugar shortage before the beginning of the First World War, and so Lviv began to serve coffee unsweetened, unless you brought in your own or used some sort of alternative, like sugar beets, a Ukrainian cultural product. War, of course, completely stopped the trade routes and completely disrupted the coffee culture of Lviv. And, of course, the Soviet arrival didn't help much, since they're not exactly known for their fun cultural aspects. When the Soviets took power in Lviv in 1939, they wanted to destroy everything and anything that would spark any opposition to them. And so, why not destroy the places where intellectuals gather to debate, argue, and exchange views? Coffee was also a foreign concept to many Soviets. In 1939, the Red Army was mostly a mashup of Soviet people. Some were Ukrainians from the other side of the border, since Ukraine was split in two during the interwar years. But the majority were like from the far east of Russia. It was literally just as much of a culture shock for them as it was for the Lviv residents when they arrived. Now, I talked to a lot of Lvivians, Lvivers, uh, people who lived in Lviv, who remembered the 1939 invasion. And I've read many accounts of that time that say the same thing. These Red Army soldiers were not accustomed to simple luxuries like porcelain toilets or silk undergarments. There are stories about confiscated toilets and sinks being shipped back in train wagons to the so-called liberating Army's families back in the Soviet Union. 
or the tale of the officer's wife wearing negligee to see an opera because when she opened the wardrobe of the apartment her husband sequestered, or in other words, stole, there was silk dresses that must be for nighttime wear to something as glamorous as an opera. They weren't used to wearing silk undergarments because silk was so scarce in the Soviet Union. So coffee was like a weird drink that these crazy Westerners drank. The Red Army soldiers were also too poor to afford it. Even in the Soviet Union, coffee was an elite drink at that time. And so tea was popular because it was cheap. So as with anything that the Soviets don't like or understand, they closed almost all of the coffee houses in Lviv. I say almost because I think Vermenska was still open at this time. It was not until the 1960s, well after Stalin's death, that they were slowly reopened and the tradition of coffee houses revived in Lviv. Initially, there was a coffee house open on uh, Mietzkevich Square and then on what is now Doroshenko Street. And as today, students flocked to them. The most popular student coffee house during the Soviet period in Lviv was the Centaur, or as the kids like to say, the back of Soviet power, which was behind Lviv um, Town Hall. The translation of that, by the way, is weird, as it should be imagined as if the kids are turning their backs to Soviet power. Get it? They were rebellious. Um, of course, there were even coffee houses for journalists and writers. The village council became popular for those secretive intellectual meetings. It wasn't until independence that coffee uh, culture in Lviv began to bloom again. And we now have so many coffee shops in Lviv that there's like one on every street. It's their Tim Hortons, I guess, for all those Canadians listening. And so that is how Lviv became the center of coffee culture in Ukraine and how one Ukrainian would change coffee drinking forever. Thank you all for listening this week. And on the next episode, we will talk about some awesome Ukrainians from Canada and their experiences during the Second World War. But if you want to check out the website at wanderingtheedge.net for additional information or just say hello, that would be great. Also great would be a donation which you could do through the want to help section of the site. Any donation will be welcome and will help me get access to some more academic sites. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Keep on wandering, my friends, and see you next time.